0: Good morning. Our text this morning is from Matthew chapter 2. We're celebrating what the church refers to as the season of Epiphany. And it's taken from this particular text in Matthew chapter 2. It reads, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, this is verse 1, in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi, they're called, from the east came to Jerusalem. They were not Jews. And asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Israel or Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this was what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. It was very important to these early followers of Jesus and to the Jews themselves of predictions about the person who would be Messiah. We'll come to that in just a moment. In verse 11, then, it says that on coming to the house, these magi saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and they worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. Uh, This is where we traditionally get the idea that these three magi or three of them uh, are are called wise men. There were three of them because there were three gifts. The scripture doesn't tell us how many of them there were. It's just that's where that comes from. This is a very significant story in Christian thought. And what is, it it gives rise to this idea of epiphany. Epiphany is the celebration in Christian uh, uh, tradition of the presentation of the infant Jesus to the magi. And the word epiphany, is really grounded in a Greek word, which means manifestation or appearance. All of us have had epiphanies in our lives. We have them quite often. Those are what we call aha moments, when we get something we didn't get, right? You might be watching a movie, and there's a bunch of storylines kind of going on, and you kind of wonder, where's this going? And all of a sudden, somewhere in the film, it all comes together, and you ah, you have that aha moment. It's called an epiphany. So epiphanies are part of our human experience. In the context of faith, this term epiphany describes the appearance of the invisible divine being, God, coming into visible form. And we go, aha, he's here, which for us is Jesus, the manifestation of God. He's called Emmanuel, which means... God with us. And so he's appearing. What's fascinating about this story to me is that this appearance is being celebrated with these magi. The magi were pagans. They're pagan astrologers. These weren't Jews. These weren't God-fearing Jews as, 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 that, that, this, that the whole notion of epiphany begins with. The notion starts with these pagans, and it has prominence in the Christian story. Why? Well, it's in tandem with the notion that Jesus didn't just come for the Jews. Jesus, aren't you glad? (laughs) Because many of you are not. (laughs) He came for the peoples of the world. Now, this brings up a a critical perspective that uh, many American Christians miss, unfortunately. Because many of us think wrongly about who can be involved with God's life and God's work in the world. Many of us think wrongly, really, about good and evil. We tend to think that uh, uh, they can never be together. That either, uh, you know, uh, there's good or there's evil, but there can never be any kind of correlation together or it, it messes things up. But Christian thought holds that good and evil are always present in the human experience. That every one of you in here, God has some good going on, and everyone in here has some naughty going on, that there's some good and evil mixed up in you. Just look at your children. (laughs) Evil in Christian thought is simply paled good. It's really good that's been corrupted. It's not unlike the notion of hot and cold. I've even noticed that the temperature is a little cooler since we've hit winter, right? And so what that is, is cold is not so much a thing as it is the absence of a thing. What is cold the absence of? Heat. So you keep taking away heat, it gets colder. You keep taking away heat, it gets colder. You take away all heat and you hit what uh, what uh, scientists would call absolute zero, which is 200 and some odd degrees below zero. That's just very, very cold. And what it means is, there's no, all heat's gone. When all heat is gone... You can't add cold. Why? Because cold is not a thing. It's really the absence of a thing, the thing called heat. That's how Christian thought is about um, uh, evil, is that it's not so much a thing as it is uh, the absence of good goodness. Uh, Evil in Christian thought is not so much personified. It's not alive like a germ. It's more goodness. If you took my jeans and you, and, and you tied them around your front tires and you drove around for 20 miles, you would have eviled my jeans because you would have taken away all its goodness. You would have worn it out. You would have put holes in it. You would have eviled my jeans. That's kind of the notion about evil. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not Satan who isn't a creature of evil. What does that mean? It isn't so much that he is pure evil, because pure evil would be kind of nothing. What he is, is the purveyor of evil. In other words, he is the one that puts your life on the front tire and drives you around. <laughs> He'll take a good marriage, throw you on the front tire, and by the time he's done, it feels like it's an evil, non-good marriage. He'll take a friendship and make it non-good. He'll take a, he'll take a, 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 a personality and someone who has, who has a good ethics and he'll wear you out and he'll evil you. So he's the purveyor of you. He's like the head of a, a, a bad uh, gang who's out to destroy people's lives. That's what Satan does. So he is a purveyor of evil. But it, it, evil is not, again, so much a thing. Now, this is, this is not the only view of evil because one of the great heretics of the church in the second century, is a a guy by the name of Marcion. And one of Marcion's core thoughts in the heresy that he uh, sort of proposed and and, and was part of, which is loosely called Gnosticism, uh, it, it was a perspective called dualism. What dualism was is that things are either all good or they're all evil. It's black or white, dude. No gray matter. Just everything's black or white. It's kind of like the notion of if, if, if you have a bottle of water and it's really good water and I have, you know, I just happen to bring some botulism with me. And if I take the botulism and I put just one little drop of botulism or two drops of botulism in there, how many of you don't want to drink this water? Why? Because it's botulized. And 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 the problem with botulized water is that even though there's more water in here than there is botch, it's ruined. See, this is the way Marcion thought about good and evil. It's that if there's any presence of evil, it should be thrown out. It's no good. This kind of thinking, this this, this heresy thinking is deeply present in Western Christianity. Because some of us think that unless something is absolutely wonderful, if there's any sense of anything wrong with it, we go from thinking it's good to it's totally horrible. So you, if you're a friend of a person who's kind of a dualist, a Christian dualist in the modern world, and and they get to know you and everything's wonderful, they think the relationship's from God and they find out one thing about you that's not exactly perfect and they cut you off. Why? Because they don't want to drink the botch. You you, you marry together and you think it's a wonderful holy marriage and you find out that that man actually has unholy thoughts at times. God forbid it's an evil marriage. Why? Because some people are so black and white, they can't handle messiness on any level. God doesn't appear to be afraid of darkness. He's not afraid of the presence of evil. That's why Jesus could be friends with sinners. He hung around with people that had problems that were well-worn front tire of jean people. Prostitutes, people who were corruptors and deceivers. And so he would hang with them and they were paled to be sure. They were evild people. They weren't so much evil people as evild people. They were paled. There was some good, but that's what he focused on. He focused on the good. Why? Because what do we know about good? We know that when you bring more good into a situation, herald good and promote good, good always overcomes evil. Now, let me sidebar and say this to you. That doesn't mean that it's not dangerous if you get around someone that's very, very pale, very, very eviled. You have to make sure the Bible says bad company corrupts good morals. You have to make sure that when you're getting around people, it's not so much that they have botch on them that you'll ingest. It's more the sense that when you approach them, you have to make sure that you understand that you're there to good them, you're there to bless them. And sometimes when you get too close to people, what ends up happening is you lower your kind of sense of guard and your sense and you start entrusting yourself to them. It's one thing to believe in and love people. It's another thing to entrust yourself to people. If you entrust yourself to a person who's evil, they will corrupt you. But if you love them and celebrate them and move toward them, knowing that you're bearing the light of Christ into their lives, light dispels darkness. You can go after them. You don't have to put a uh, CDC white suit protecting thing on right? You can love them recklessly. You can love them with openness. And you see this in, in like Paul's life where he goes to this place called Athens. And he it, the scripture says that he's grieved because they have all this worshiping of demons and, and these altars uh, to an unknown God, or altars to all these different people, and then one to an unknown God. And he actually comes up to that altar in the midst of all that. And he says, oh, oh let me show you something. He said, this impulse in you, even though They've got they're eviled in many ways. He found the impulse of good in them. He found something good about them. He said, this thing that makes you want to worship, that's of God. That's good. And this altar that's here, that's to an unknown God. Let me tell you what that really points to. And he used that to sort of parlay the gospel into their context. Most American evangelicals, if they'd walk into that, they'd go, filthy, filthy demon people. Get away, get the kids together, get in the car. Because it would freak us out. Because to the dualist, everything's just black and white. If you're a dualist, you get all messed up with things that aren't perfectly clear. Like, you know, you could never see any good in Halloween. Or Satan Claus. I mean, Santa Claus. Why? Because, you know, it's just there's no real chapter and verse to approve them. So they must be evil, not understanding. Listen. My kids asked me when we were growing up, because we had people in our church who were dualists, that, you know, Halloween is either good or evil. And then if you look at the roots of Halloween, it's rooted in pagan ceremony. There's a lot of weirdness in it, craziness, demonic activity in it. And, and they would say, look at this, weirdness, demonic activity in the origins of Halloween. I say, well, yeah, well, we're not doing that. I tell my kids, they say, well, is it evil? I say, well, for some people it is. But listen, here's what we're doing. We're dressing up weird. We're knocking on doors, saying the magic words, trick or treat, and they give us free candy. (laughs) How good is that? (laughs) I don't see any evil in this. (laughs) We're not even paying for that candy, dude. We get to dress weird, how sweet is that? And then Santa, the fat guy in a red suit, giving out free stuff and encouraging kids to be nice. How is that evil? Well, it just takes away from the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, it doesn't have to. I mean, if you wanted to, go ahead. But I don't want it to. I, you know, I, I dressed up like Santa this year to my grandkids. Amen. <clears throat> there's, a, there's an appropriate fattage that I could do that with. <laughs> but see, the, the duelists can't handle that. Too messy. They did. It's, just, it's just either things are right or things are wrong. And you, they write books and go on radio, and they're they're always doing this. <laughs> and everybody wants to be like them. <laughs> I remember, you know, back and before tattoos were cool, and you know piercings and all that thing were kind of in the mainstream. It didn't always, that wasn't always in the mainstream, note to you. Uh, when I was growing up, 50s and 60s, which was a long time ago, the only people that had tattoos and piercings and stuff, they were like gang people. They were motorcycle gangs, prostitutes, you know, that kind of thing. So when, when, when that kind of stuff started spilling into the, into the general culture, it freaked me out a little. And I remember running into the first kid, this was in the 80s sometime, running into the first kid that was kind of tatted up a little bit and had some piercings on him. And inside me, I was going, oh, oh, he's got the botch. <laughs> and and I, was, I was a little, I was a little freaked out. Can I get near him? Because I don't want to drink that. I don't, don't want to get that in me. So I was a little freaked out and I caught myself. And I remember in my heart feeling the Holy Spirit say, move toward him, move toward him, love him. Embrace him. And so I started talking to him. And, you know, I asked him, you know, the just natural questions. I didn't try to, you know, talk him out of his tats or whatever. I just, <laughs> I just said, did that hurt when you put that on there? <laughs> and he had like some kind of a thing in his eyebrow or whatever it was, in his nose. I said, what about those? Did those hurt? He's going, oh, not as bad as these. <laughs> <laughs> wow! I mean, I actually said that. Wow, Dude! You're a hoe! lot more courageous than me. I could never do that. <laughs> so I'm engaging in this whole conversation with him, and found that he was the coolest kid, sweet and genuine, just different than me, but not fully botched. I remember the, the first time this is you know, I grew up in rural America, and, and this was in the early 80s, probably 81, when I ran into the first guy who was openly gay. He was serving At a restaurant we went to, and I'm telling you, inside myself, I mean, I found myself going, and I didn't want him to wait on my table. I, you know, I didn't want him to wait on my children. I didn't want the gay germ to get on them. (laughs) Sounds very horrible, but that's what I was thinking. And I caught myself. I said, "Stop it! Stop it! What is this?" And really began to understand. Wait a minute. I may not approve of a particular sexual expression. Of, of any more than I would if somebody found out somebody was, you know, uh, outside of, of marriage, having an ongoing sexual relation with anybody, gay or straight. I wouldn't be approving of that. But that doesn't mean people aren't good on some level and that I shouldn't move toward them and celebrate them. And you know, when you do that, you find out that some of the people that you would immediately blow off are some of the most wonderful people in the world. I mean, some, some of the, I, I honestly, I, do not agree with everyone I bump into, but I'll tell you what I do. I love them recklessly, and I don't try to put on germ suits when I'm around them. <laughs> Dualists think they catch evil because they think it's alive, right? They—they. They, this is why some Christians think they're so demon conscious. Everything's a demon. If you eat too much, you got a gluttony devil. If you, if you buy too much, you've got a consumer devil. If you envy too much, you've got an envy devil. I mean, you've think got all these devils. There's actually books that list hundreds of devils that you can cast out of people. What is that? That's that stupid is what that is. <laughs> it's dualism. See, dualism can't handle complexity. They can't handle that someone is not absolutely perfect because they see everything in black and white. This even shows up in politics. Dare I go down this trail? <laughs> Augustine, who wrote this, his magnum opus, The City of God, it's this great work that kind of deals with the problem of pagan civic leadership. It's talking about the city of God is God's people who are following God's precepts and who follow the cause of Christ. And they know that one day the kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. They know that one day God's perspective will rule. But while that's an impulse of good, Augustine deals with the fact that we live in a world that's ruled by the kingdom of Cain, the city of Cain, not the city of God. And so in his whole book, he's talking about how do the people in the city of God work with the people of the city of Cain because they don't always fully agree. Hopefully you'll agree a lot, but a lot of times it'll twist and the people that are in leadership don't mirror the city of God's interests. And so what do you do? Do you blow them off? Do you think they're botches? (laughs) That's funny. You botch. (laughs) That's funny. (laughs) Do you just blow them off, or do you try to work with them? Augustine claims, work with them. Grab onto their coats and say, let's do this together. Find what good you can do and do it together. Don't be thrown by their weirdness. Don't be thrown by what, what you think is wrong. See, he didn't encourage outrage in civic authority or civic deals. I, I watched President Obama speak at the, uh, this memorial service that took place and, uh, with the kids being murdered. And, and he was so gracious and sympathetic and um, used scripture to kind of lay down. It almost was like a sermon, really. And um, I, I spoke to some believers about it afterwards, and they, they spoke disparagingly about the speech. Just, just didn't feel right to me. was in my spirit didn 't feel right to me. Uh, and, and some of the ones I spoke with were even more upset that he mentioned um, his hope for stiffer gun control uh, in the context of that. They were more upset about that than they were blessed by his message of hope and faith, as though the right to bear arms was part of the apostle's Creed. now I I believe in the right to bear arms. I'm an American. I politically believe that. But it's not a religious issue. Uh, they didn't care that he gave hopeful kind of comments to the people. Because he's a Democrat. He's botulism, baby. He carries it. He is this. I, don't, I didn't vote Democratic this go-around for a number of reasons, but Barack Obama is my president. He is your president. Well, I didn't vote for him. You're an American. <laughs> <coughs> <laughs> what did you see when you look at him? Do you hunt for the good? You don't have to agree with him on everything. But does he have cooties to you? So that when you see him, there's this internal kind of reaction inside. If that's true, you're a dualist and you're a heretic by Christian standards. (laughs) (laughs) And just be thankful it's not earlier than the 17th century because in the 17th century, the church fought to have tolerance before so that you could have different opinions and not be killed. Before the 17th century, we would simply, if you articulated those thoughts, throw you in prison and torture you to death. I think God wants his people to be kind. I think he wants us to be generous people, and you can't do that by being a dualist. You Being kind and generous isn't surrendering to evil, quite the contrary. When you're kind and generous, it was Paul who said, we overcome evil by doing good. You always snuff out evil. And when we get around people, if we'll side with the good in their lives and search for the good in their lives, even if they're very, very pale. We will line up with them, and somehow good will overcome the evil that's in them. I can't tell you how many stories I've heard of horrible people, people that are criminals, gang leaders, that Christians would reach out to and just begin to align themselves with, and instead of being thrown by all the weirdness and all the horrible things that they did, they just saw value in a person that no one else saw value in, and somehow that flipped the person that they came to Christ, and all the stuff they were doing turned around, and their lives were saved. Why? Go to Les Mis. See a criminal who, was, who somehow was loved into becoming a citizen who actually contributed great things to the world. Why? Because someone dared not to think he was botchy. Yeah. Someone dared to say there's worth in that guy. There's a worth in everyone you meet. Stop being a dualist. <laughs> I wasn't going to get upset. <laughs> All right, back to the Bible here. <clears throat> So here's God using these botchy pagans, and, and, and these are star-worshipping dudes, and he's using them to show us how we're to respond to the appearing of God in the flesh. And he says, in, in verse 11 of our text, he says that, it, that they, on coming to the house, these magi saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down, and they worshipped him, and then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts. See, the, the, the tradition of kneeling, the tradition of genuflecting that was deeply entrenched in the early church, and the notion of giving as a worship, the giving gifts, giving money as a worship to God, this all comes from these pagans. This, this idea that somehow we're to react to the infant King Jesus and to our Lord and Savior Jesus in a way that yields and surrenders and gives. These magi were not fully good, but they were not viewed as botulized people that had no value. They actually lead the headlines in the Christian world in January, every January, because they stand for the notion of epiphany. It's when God reveals himself in the world. The last thing I want to share with you about this is that Jesus... When we have these epiphanies of Jesus, it's not just a moment of salvation when you believe in him and cross the threshold of faith and, and you start learning the scriptures and you start falling in love with him and you have these experiences of faith like in worship or communion. It's not like that. If you're not careful, you'll get used to a certain kind of pattern of Christianity. And after a while, you kind of, kind, kind of become like the guys that know everything. And, uh, you know, you just think, well, you know, praise God. I've been serving the Lord Jesus Christ for a number of years. And I read the Bible four or five times. And, and if you have any real questions, I have all the answers. <laughs> 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 <Right>? <laughs> you become the experts. There are no experts in faith. You know why? Because we're bumping up against an infinite God. An infinite means you can't get a hold of it with finite, infinite can't get grabbed by finite. Your mind is finite. I mean, infinite talk, I mean, how do you orient yourself in infinite? You can't. I mean, there's no middle in infinite. There's no beginning. There's no end. So it's like when you think infinite thoughts of an infinite God, the best you can do is free fall and just pretend you're oriented. Like, example, example, You're sitting here right now, feeling quite still. But do you know that we are traveling through space at about how fast? 175,000 miles an hour. What is it? Anybody know? How fast is the earth moving? 17,000 miles an hour. And then how fast is the earth moving through space? It's really fast. The reality is you feel like you're sitting here, but it's an illusion. You're moving like... But we're all sitting here, because we're all moving together, thinking we're still. <laughs> You're completely deceived. <laughs> There's no way you can get your mind around what's really going on. Now, that's finite world. We're in the infinite world. How do you deal with forgiveness? How do you deal with redemption? How do you? Deal with, how do you deal with a God who's beyond being, who has three persons, but one being but not really being? How do you deal with that? Omnipotent, all-powerful. How do you? The bottom line is the part of your face when you think about it ought to just droop. (laughs) Right? Which means when you approach your faith you've got to understand there is a part of this that's mysterious. I would suggest the largest part. So don't don't get all hot and mighty and wonderful thinking bless God you know I can just tell you everything. You don't know Jack. You you don't know Jay much less (laughs) Ack. Romans 11, Paul says it this way. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable. Unsearchable. See, our Western minds said, well, I can figure it out. I'll just go to Bible school and figure this out. You can't figure it out. It's unsearchable. His judgments, his past, you can't trace them. The problem is most of us are uncomfortable with mystery. And so we try to talk familiarity. You know, true. We come to Jesus and there's something very familiar about him. The Bible actually calls him our brother. There's a human. His incarnation means he came at us humans. So he's, his for usness, his with usness, gives us a sense of familiarity. The Bible actually calls God the Father, our Father. In Romans, Paul says, We cry by the Holy Spirit, Abba, which means not just Father, it's actually the child's word for Father, Daddy. So there's a sense of intimacy. Daddy. But if we're not careful, we'll think the intimacy is familiarity. When I was young enough to call my dad, my father, Daddy, there was a whole lot about Daddy I didn't get. All I knew was that sometimes he was there and sometimes he wasn't. And, 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 he, and when he came in, he was a bit of a mystery to me. Daddy. And, and when he talked, I listened. And if he sort of said something strongly, it freaked me out. My daddy, when I was that age calling him daddy, was a mystery to me. And family, listen. There ought to be something always in us that we cultivate this sense. I'm glad he came to me. I'm glad he's part of me. I'm glad there's, an, there's a sense of correlation and intimacy with me. But I do not get Jesus. I do not get God. He is beyond getting. It's cool. I mean, if you look at the, you know, the sense that God's incarnate, that he is for us, he's among us, that's why all the great Christian traditions have art. We have this art, and every culture depicts Jesus as, as a native one born of their own culture. So, for instance, the Greek Byzantines have their portrait of Jesus, and it looks like a Greek guy. And then you have the Asians who have their Jesus, who looks like an Asian Jesus. This is this true? Or you have, you have the Anglo-Saxons that make Jesus into this guy, right? And then you have the, the, the Africans who make Jesus a little like, more like this, right? So it's kind of, there's all these different images you see in these different cultures. And the same thing is true philosophically. The conservatives have their Jesus. Where all of a sudden, when we follow Jesus as a conservative, we tend to look at the scriptures or read the New Testament in the ways that it supports us as conservatives. Then the liberals do the same thing. Some of the people you think are ungodly people are some of the people in politics and stuff. There's some of the people that love God, but they focus on other aspects of the gospel, like Matthew 25. You know, that theres I could name several. In fact, I'll tell you. I know Nancy Pelosi. Some of you don't like Nancy Pelosi. But I know for a fact, because I know someone who knows her personally, who tells me that she is deeply involved with her faith. She attends a Catholic mass every day. And one of the things that she does, whether you agree with her politically or not, is one of the reasons she fights so much for social issues is because she believes that Matthew 25 is the text of all texts where Jesus said, when I was naked, you clothed me. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. And when I was in prison, you visited me. So her whole perspective is to do everything in government to make sure that the underprivileged is taken care of. Now, politically, I don't agree with that. But the reality is she's resourcing Jesus. She has her Jesus, right? So do the evangelicals. We have our Jesus. The traditionalists have their Jesus. The point is that's both good and bad because it's good because it affirms the fact that he's for us, the fact that he's with us. It's the nature of incarnation. But it's bad because if we're not careful, he will lose his strangeness. He, if we're not careful, we'll forget he's other than us. And it's his otherness that is the very basis of discipleship. Because if he is me or like me too much, I have nothing to change. But as one, I acknowledge the fact that he is not like me, that he is full of mystery, that he is strange to me, and that he actually, the incarnation is, he's basically coming to me, standing with me, and yet he is standing against the world that I've erected. He comes to me asking me to deal with my selfishness. He confronts me about the expressions of my uh, uh, lifestyle, of my buying habits, of my sexuality habits, all the things that I do. Jesus calls those things into question. And it's precisely this idea that he comes to be like us and yet is very much unlike us that we have the issue of it being appropriate for us to be a little freaked out about Jesus. Don't ever get too familiar with Jesus. That is our call. That's why we go to the Gospels over the next few months as we march toward Easter. We're going to go over the Jesus story. We'll talk about where he came from, what he came to do, what was taught, what he taught, how he saw himself, what he's doing right now, all those kinds of questions. So that somehow we can see him, how he's like us, but yet how different he is from us. So that we can listen to the call for us to be transformed. I hope you make it a purposeful intention to be in church over the spring as we march toward Easter. And the reality is we'll run into more questions than we will answers, Which means that I think faith is about more better questions, about better questions, questions that disturb us more than it is about giving perfect answers, settled answers, because there's so much unknowing in faith. Buckle up, baby, it's going to be sweet. Grace.